So this is, this is the thing. This is why I want to bring this up. We've been sitting for, today will be the seventh week that we've been sitting in, Jesus' letters to his church. And as he addresses these different churches and their different communities, every single one of the churches is taking on flavors of its community. So when we sit in the church in America, in our time, every single congregation we have our culture that influences us. For the church of Ephesus, what were they missing? What problem did the church of Ephesus have? They had a love problem. Everything else was great, but they had their relationship with Jesus Christ was off. For the Smyrna church, their relationship was on, but they had a suffering problem. So Jesus' exhortation to them was to be faithful even if... Your faith in me requires your death. Be faithful unto death. Why? Because he is alive. So when we die, the moment you take your last breath in this shell, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, when you open up your spiritual eyes, you stare into the eyes of your Savior. What great hope we have. For the churches of Pergamos and Thyatira, they had doctrinal problems. The, the, the core of the church was doing well in regards to the relationship with Jesus, but they had within those communities those who were preaching false doctrines, and there were those, that rebuke and the exhortation that Jesus was giving to those churches. For the church of Sardis, Sardis had a name problem. They had a name, and they were identifying themselves with a name other than the name of Jesus. For the church of Philadelphia, Jesus didn't have any problem with them. Their relationship with the Lord seemed to be right where it was supposed to be. And Jesus was telling them, I have an open door before you. You have personally a little strength. And in your weakness, through the grace of Jesus Christ, that's where you find strength. And as you walk with him according to his grace, wherever he chooses to lead you, that door is open. There will be no door closed to you according to his will. But now this morning, so rather than a traditional Easter message, we're just going to continue in the word, and we're preaching through Laodicea this morning. There's an Easter message for you, because what's the, what's the Laodicean church's problem? It's a temperature problem. They're lukewarm. Anybody like a hot latte? Anybody like a cold latte? Anybody roll up to the window and say, would you please make me a lukewarm latte? So we're going to sit in that message this morning, but before we get into that, I want you to have a snapshot of your culture. As believers in Jesus Christ, as, as we've gathered here this morning, and whether you've bent the knee to him as Savior or not, I pray that this is the day that you do, that you will have that confidence before you walk out of here. Here's the condition of the body of Christ in our culture. So in the last 20 years, so 20 years ago, 70% of Americans, your countrymen, identified with a church in one fashion or another, whether it's church, synagogue, or mosque. So some kind of religious affiliation. Today, for the first time in American history, that statistic is under, under 50%. So it's declined 20% over the last two decades. And 
You know, you had that final uptick in 2001 after 9-11 that sent a lot of people into churches looking for truth, looking for hope in the midst of that attack. And since then, there was a, a pretty gradual decline. And then over the last 10 years, it's really picked up steam. Is that a surprise to anybody? It, it, it shouldn't be a surprise. But what would it take for that trend to be reversed in our culture? So I'm going to give you Gallup's solution to that trend at the end of this article, kind of make all of you just as irritated as I am. So I, I'd encourage you to read through this. It's, it's worth it. So just look up Google church membership. It's a, a not, not Google, Gallup. You can Google Gallup church membership. It's an article from about six or seven days ago. Last paragraph says, a 2017 Gallup study found churchgoers citing sermons as the primary reason they attended church. Is that why you come here, to listen to me talk? God help you. Majorities also said spiritual programs geared toward children and teenagers. Is that why you... Fellowship Is that why you gather together, just because of children's or teen programs? Others, they're engaging in the body of Christ because of community outreach and volunteer opportunities. So the church is providing me something to do with my time and something to make me feel good about what I'm doing with my life. Many pull into a congregation because of dynamic leaders being a factor in their choosing to attend. attend. So in other words, it's the, uh, and this just isn't me, and, I, and again, I don't, everybody has their personalities. You know, Amber, you know exactly what that lady is thinking, and I love it. If she's happy, you know she's happy. If she's mad, you know that she's mad because she has no filter, and it's awesome. <laughs> me, you question because, again, I'm just kind of stoic and a little bit more laid back by personality. And is that your angry face? No, I'm really smiling on the inside, I promise. Um, but there's a lot to, you know, it's through that self-help, uh, self-motivator kind of personality that gathers human beings together uh, for that sermonette, for a Christianette, so to say. But here's Gallup's solution to reversing the trend of declining church membership in America. A focus on some of these factors may also help local church leaders encourage people who share their faith to join their church. Is that the Bible's solution to the world's problems? What's the solution? Jesus. If our attention is on anyone else other than the God who created the heavens and the earth, of course there's going to be a problem. And this is the church of Laodicea's problem. Their relationship with Jesus has a pretty significant issue. We're going to sit in some of the depressing nature of that, but we really are going to focus on the life of Christ. His death, burial, resurrection, ascension, the promise that he is on the throne right now, the promise that he is coming back. We have great hope and great confidence as we individually and corporately attend to Jesus and Jesus alone. So here's the letter. Revelation 3, I think that says verse 14. You know, this little bi-vision thing 
it works sometimes and other times it doesn't. So I bet you my old man readers are going to come back out. All right, here we go. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea, or to the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither hot, neither cold nor hot. I, I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... That's me. You're welcome. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the church of Laodicea. Laodicea gets its name from the, the wife of the founder of the city. But the name means uh, leading the people, the, or the people ruling is the definition of what Laodicea means. So here's... And again, this is, this is where when we sit in how to interpret every single one of these letters to the churches, names are often important. What was going on culturally and historically seems to be important because as Jesus is conveying his words to the culture, he's using cultural circumstances to bring to the surface the problems that he is attempting to address and the direction that he wants them to turn. So when it comes to ruling the people, how many of you know in America the saying that our government is of the people, for the people, and by the people? You ever heard that before? Do you know where that comes from? Who said it? Anybody? I thought, I thought it was like part of the Declaration or Constitution until I looked it up. I forgot. Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address says that our government is under God of the people, for the people, and by the people. But because you didn't know that was Abraham Lincoln, I bet you didn't know who Abraham Lincoln was quoting. He was really quoting John Wycliffe. So in the, in the uh, you know, introductory pages of the John Wycliffe's translation of the Bible, and I think this is from 1600s, said that the Bible is the government of the people, for the people, and by the people. 
What do we see in our culture? What's been removed tremendously from our public square in the culture in which we abide? God's word and God himself. If you remove the words of God, who do you remove? You remove God from that equation. What are you left with? People. So when you sit in the issues of our government, what are we observing? You sit in the issues of our culture, what are we observing? You're observing human beings who are not subjected to the authority of God and to the authority of God's word. So when we find human beings that are not subject to his authority and his word, we ought to find sin growing because that which God calls good, our culture is going to call evil. That which God calls evil, our culture is going to call good. So ultimately, even with Laodicea and as we sit in our own culture today, they have a leadership problem, a ruler problem. And this is, as, as we've been addressing each one of these churches, Jesus, when he reveals himself, remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's unveiling himself. And he picks up on attributes of himself as he addresses the issue within each one of these congregations. And for this one, he says that he is the beginning of the creation of God. That does not mean that Jesus is the first thing of God's creation. It means he is the source of the originator of the creation in which we live in. Jesus is saying, I am God. But this word beginning, it literally means he is the ruler. The Laodicean church, they have a rulership problem. The people are ruling. And when the people rule, it's the majority rules. Whoever has the most powerful voice, whoever's the most charismatic, whoever gets the majority onto their team is the one who sets the rules. We see that in our culture, and you can see that in different congregations throughout history. And this is the problem of the Laodicean church. The reason why they are lukewarm is because people are ruling, and they are not subjected to the rulership of Jesus. Again, that's why I said, you know, there, there is no other solution to man's problem other than Jesus and Jesus himself. Whether you have a marriage problem, a parent-child problem, a job problem, a mental problem, a physical problem, whatever the problem may be, Jesus is always the solution. Because in who he has demonstrated himself to be. Now listen to the rest of, he, as he reveals himself, he declares himself to be the amen. Why do we say amen at the end of, of a prayer? Is it just a religious thing? Is it just, I mean, you know, you just learned it from your parents. Prayer's over, what do you say? Amen. What does it mean? So be it. Truly. So when you sit in the Gospels and Jesus says, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto you, he's saying, amen, amen, truth, truth, I am saying to you. You know, the authority that Jesus Christ had as he communicated the word of God was astonishing, and it's still astonishing to us today. In Corinthians, Paul tells us that all the promises of God in Jesus Christ are yes and amen to the glory of God through us. All the promises of God. The promise that God has created you. The promise that he has a plan for you. The promise that he loves you. The promise that Jesus died for your personal sins. The promise that when you take your last breath and your body is dead in the grave, 
it's that get up, get up. You are going to hear the voice of your Savior call you out of that grave. Lazarus, come out. Blake, get up here. Can't wait for that day. All the promises of God are in Jesus Christ. And they are yes and they are amen. Truly, truly, so be it. And then that, that identifying mark. He is the true He is the faithful and the true witness that everything that Jesus does in his nature, in in his character, is faithful into his relationship with his Father. Everything that he sees, everything that he hears, everything that he bears testimony to is true. So now it's this, this is the one that is speaking to this church. This is the one who is speaking to us today. I know your works, and he's said that to all these other churches also. He has perfect knowledge into exactly what is going on. And this whole idea that they're not, caught, they're not cold, they're not hot, but they're lukewarm. So culturally, uh, Laodicea is located by Hierapolis, and uh, I don't know how you say it, Colossae, Colossae, uh, the letter to the Col- Colossian church. It's not that far away, but Laodicea doesn't have their own water supply. So Hierapolis has hot springs, and the water was piped in six miles. And by the time the hot springs went over this distance, it showed up into Laodicea with a lukewarm fashion. So there's something that this culture would understand in regards to uh, their water supply and you know, what, it, what it feels like to have lukewarm water in your mouth. When it comes to this idea of cold or hot, there's a couple of ways to look at the word cold. One, when Jesus says, I wish you were cold or I wish you were hot, the word cold is either identifying um, that cold water is just as refreshing as hot water, depending on the circumstance that you're looking for, or it is a, it's an attribute of the human heart that is cold towards God. So you could sit with the Apostle Paul. Was the Apostle Paul cold towards Jesus Christ at a point in his life? Yes, he was very cold. He was persecuting the church. Anybody that professed that Jesus was the Messiah, he was pursuing them, making havoc of the church. Paul would be identified as being cold toward Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I'd rather you be cold or hot. With a cold heart, there's something that's still going on there that in their rejection against God, at least they're still thinking, they're still engaged, they're still conscious, where the lukewarm believer or the lukewarm individual, Jesus is saying that this person, they're they're unconscious of their need. So when Jesus is saying, "I, I, I wish, I could wish, that you were either cold or hot, because then I could do something with your heart. But because you're tepid, because you're lukewarm, because you are unconscious of your need, because you have this I don't know and I don't care kind of attitude, that is the hardest heart to reach. That's the hardest heart for Jesus and for his word to pierce. And because we're sitting in Easter and Resurrection Sunday and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ... If you were to sit around that table with Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples, which disciple would you define as lukewarm? Which one? Anybody? Shout it out. Judas? 
Think, think about the disciples who follow Jesus. Yeah, Peter. Peter's kind of, you know, he's, he's the guy that lacked the self-control, right? He didn't have a filter over his mouth. Whatever he was thinking, you knew it. He had an idea and a response for everything. He was willing to correct his master. He got put in his place a couple of times, but that was a heart that Jesus could work with. James and John, nicknamed the sons of thunder. Why? This guy, this guy John, John's the disciple of love. When he was a young guy, that guy, that guy had some wrath. When they were traveling through Samaria, Jesus is making his way through Jerusalem. The Samaritan village didn't want to let him in. What did, what did James and John ask Jesus to do? Can we call down fire from heaven and just smoke them? Kill them all. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty hot temper, you know? I mean, think about it. And Jesus corrects them. Those, those were hearts that Jesus could and de- did deal with. So what's up with Judas? What, do you, what, what was Judas's problem? I don't have a clue. I really don't. He had a materialism problem. It says that he was the keeper of the treasury box, and he was willing to sell Jesus to hand his master over to those who wanted to arrest him. Um, he was willing to hand him over for money. But there's something about Judas's relationship with Jesus where he didn't have enough of Jesus in his life to be happy in who he was. At the same time, he had too much of the world going on within himself to be happy in his relationship with Jesus. I mean, you could tell Judas was not a happy man. He is, he is outside of the Antichrist, he's the only one in the Bible that's called the son of perdition, which is pretty much the son of hell. And, he's in, and we're told that he is the only one that was possessed by Satan himself, by this being that was in the garden, standing in opposition to God, deceiving, lying. That being possessed this man, Judas, because of Judas's lukewarmness. There was something about his character that he was dissatisfied with everything. He was dissatisfied with the world. He was dissatisfied with who Jesus was presenting himself to be. And again, Judas was there the whole time. Judas had the same calling that Peter had. We don't have the testimony, but at some point, Judas was revealed to the ministry of Jesus. At some point, Jesus looked at Judas and said, Judas, you come and follow me. And Judas left all to follow Jesus. As Jesus is up on the mountain praying to the Father in regards to the 12 specifically, Judas was one of the 12, known from the very beginning that he was going to be a betrayer. And Jesus is there in constant interaction, daily interaction with Judas. Judas saw his miracles. Judas heard his teaching. Judas saw how he interacted with human beings of all sorts. And whatever he had going on within, who Jesus was did not pierce his calloused heart. And it's, it's a miserable testimony in regards to uh, his end. Because even after he betrayed Jesus, what did he try to do? He repented. He came back. I, I've betrayed innocent blood. Tries to give the money back. They won't take it. But he doesn't go to God in repentance. What does he do? 
He goes and he, he takes care of his own personal ministry and ends his life. And there is a special place in the darkness of hell for that man. That's the, that's the depth of the warning that Jesus is trying to address. When Jesus addresses the Pharisee, what, Pharisees, what does he call them? You blind guides. You go out into this world and you proclaim man's doctrine and you get converts to your doctrine and you're making themselves twice the sons of hell that you are. Those are, those are words out of the mouth of our Savior in Matthew 23. And this is what he's attempting to get to. So as he addresses this lukewarm problem, Jesus' ultimate conclusion is they have a definition of themselves that doesn't line up with reality. So for this congregation, it's revolving around their wealth. You say that you're rich, you say that you're wealthy, but ultimately it's that one line, I don't need you. I don't need anything. I have all of God that I need. I have said the prayer, I have been raised in the church by my parents, my grandparents, you know, there's this religious tradition for the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the lawyers that Jesus rebukes in Matthew 23. Every single one of these individuals that he is attempting to pierce their hard hearts, he would place into that, that, this category of being lukewarm. Clearly they were zealous and passionate for God but they're, they're, they had an unconscious need. They were not aware of their what? Jesus says, you don't even know that you're wretched. There's only one other time in the Bible, in the New Testament, that the word wretched is used. You guys know what it is? Romans 7. This is a great passage. Romans chapter 7. I won't read through all this because we don't have time. Paul's talking about that there's, there's, this, there's a law. The law, uh, as I fail to obey God's commands, it reveals to me the depth of my sin. Paul goes on and he says, what I want to do, what I will to do, I'm not practicing. Those things I hate, when God tells me not to do something, I'm, I'm finding myself doing it. If I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good, but now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. I know that in, in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. And he goes on, says, I find, uh, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. I will to do good, but there's evil in here. I can't figure it out. He says, I delight in the law of God. I agree that God is good. I agree that his law is good according to my inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of the mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Listen, this is the Apostle Paul. Wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And he immediately turns into a praise. I thank God 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. When Jesus is addressing the Laodicean church, when he is addressing the Pharisees, when he was addressing Judas, when he addresses us, when he addresses uh, a parts of the culture that would say, I don't need anything, I'm good. I have everything that I need. I'm okay with God. God doesn't have any problems with me. This is the way he created me. I'm demanding that God accept me the way that I am, and I'm demanding that you accept me the way that I am. I don't need anything. I don't need to change. I don't need Jesus. I don't need Jesus, people. Jesus says, you don't even. And again, these words are meant to what? They're meant to pierce through, surgically through every excuse that we can offer and to know and understand our own personal wretchedness, just our own personal misery that this body that I dwell in is leading me to death. And my only freedom from this shell is through the eternal life of Jesus Christ, which is proved to me through his resurrection from the dead. It's powerful. And not only are you wretched, he says, you're miserable. This word, Paul picks up this word being miserable in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, if Jesus Christ has not risen from the dead, we as believers in Jesus Christ, in his resurrection, we are the most pitiable people on the planet. Because we believe in his resurrection. We believe that his resurrection is the testimony of our eternal life. And this is what we believe and this is what we're abiding in and this is what we're hoping in. If that event is not true, we are truly the most miserable people in the world because that means that some other religious system has it right and we don't. But because that event is true, We've purchased from him joy, his joy, his peace. He goes on and talks about poverty. When he's talking about poverty, he's not just talking about physical poverty. He's talking about spiritual poverty. And here's the reality. When God created the heavens and the earth, and he created man, male and female, in his image, what did he tell Adam and Eve to do? Concerning my creation, the earth the sea, the air, I am giving it to you to go and subdue it and dominated it. What I have created is yours, God said to Adam and Eve. And then you have the fall there in Genesis 3 where they disobey that singular command of God through eating through this singular tree that God said, don't eat that. And that's ultimately, that disobedience brings death, but that disobedience also brought poverty. Because what happened to man's ability to dominate and to rule over what God created? It was handed to another. It was handed to Satan. As we get into Revelation chapter 5, the scroll that Jesus is opening, 
It's going to relate directly back to this dominion that this dragon, this serpent, this devil has over the earth. And the freedom, the satisfaction that Jesus has performed in regards to the requirements of this deed. It says that he is the only one who is worthy. And how he stands at our door with all that he is and all that he has. As he is standing there knocking, he desires to enter in with all of that, that riches in contrast to the poverty that he is attempting to reveal to every human being. And not only are you poor, you're also what? You're blind. Unable to see what is true. Again, this go sit in uh, Matthew 23 and listen to that rebuke in regards to blindness. And not only are you blind, you are also naked. So that gets back to when God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden and they attempted to hide their sin and clothe themselves in these fig leaves, what does God do? God sacrificed an animal, the Almighty God set forth the system of sacrifice and clothed them in the skin of an animal. Again, this giving this institution that a death is required to cover. So this is why we sit in the death of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, his death, his blood, his body given for us is what clothes us in God's righteousness. Because the reality is, apart from him, your nakedness is exposed. And everybody knows what kind of shame that would feel like if we walked you up here and presented you in front of a crowd naked. It's a shameful thing. And God says, you're filled with shame. Don't even know it. You're covering it with your righteousness, your bandage, your culture, your works. And what's Jesus' advice? He says, come here. I have something I want you to consider. I want you to buy something from me. How do you, how do you buy Jesus' righteousness? How do, you, how do you buy his wealth, his riches? Come, I want you to buy from me gold, gold that he's refined. How can you afford that? Come here, I, I, want you to, I want you to buy from me garments that will clothe you, not in your own righteousness, but in my righteousness. How are you going to afford that? Through your service, through your works? Got, got, got enough uh, money in your bank account for that check to clear? Turn to Isaiah 55. This is one of those things, again, the word of God itself is the best commentary on the word of God. And there's so many places within Revelation that it's imagery, it's words Jesus is using to, to point back to a full picture and a full flavor in the Old Testament. So in Isaiah 55, we're going to read through this whole thing. Ho, pay attention. Hey, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Listen, you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk. Wait a minute, what? Without money and without price. Ultimately, the call is to come in faith. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Lest your soul delight 
And let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Ultimately, Jesus being that fulfillment of the promise of David's descendant. Verse 5, surely... You shall call a nation you did not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because, the Lord, because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Famous verse. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but the water to the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the things for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. Again, that's right back to Genesis 3, that the, the field that Adam was going to tend was going to produce thorns. Here, the reversal of it. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. I counsel you. I want you to consider. I want you to come and buy from me, not with your wealth, because you have nothing. I want you to come to me in faith, and I will give to you true riches. I will give to you true righteousness, and I will give to you true sight. And this simple statement is very powerful. It's something that we all need to realize and understand. That it's because the Lord has affection towards you, that he loves you, that he exposes where it says here that he rebukes and that he chastens. The idea of of a rebuke is Jesus comes to us and he reveals what's true. He exposes the hidden things. He takes our heart and he shows us what is real and what is true. And sometimes that's harsh. Sometimes that's tender. Sometimes we've, he's given us a megaphone that we're continuing to ignore. And sometimes it's that still small voice as we're attempting to listen to him. And he's walking alongside of us. But the idea of chastening. So he's exposing, but ultimately he is, he's training us just like a parent trains a child. You know, when you watch your child start to go wayward when they're young, you don't, you don't destroy them. You teach them what's right. 
you correct, you set them back on the right path. When they fall, you have a conversation, you pick them up and you set them back on that right path so that they can be successful in their life with God. And that's what Jesus does for us. The command is for us to be zealous and repented. Literally, it's be hot. Zeal has everything to do with the heat. So ultimately, Jesus is looking for a fervency in your relationship with him. Not a fervency that's according to the flesh, but a fervency that's according to truth. Because again, lukewarmness, one of its, one of its traits is going to be, meh, I'm good. You know, just, I'm good just sitting where I am, doing what I'm doing. Um, you know, anyways, uh, his constant proclamation to the human heart, which each one of us has, is to repent. Keep turning away. Keep turning away from yourself, your ideas, your wisdom. Keep turning away from man, man's traditions, man's religion. Keep turning away from the idolatry that is so prevalent in the culture in which you live. Keep turning away from all that stands in opposition to God and come to me. And look at this imagery. So last week with Philadelphia says, behold, I set before you an open door. Jesus says, I have the keys. I have the keys of heaven. I have the keys of hell. Any door that I unlock stays open, Jesus says. Any door that I shut stays locked. That's the power and authority that Jesus has. To the church of Philadelphia, he says, Behold, I set before you an open door. An open door in your relationship with him as you follow him. Nothing will hinder you. You will overcome. You will be victorious in who he is. He will cause you success in the path that he has created you for and the works that he has created you to do. You will thrive and produce the fruit that he has given but look at the gentleman that he is the only door that he won't kick in is your heart he stands at the door of your heart and says will you let me in and for those of us who have opened that door some of us open it up a, just a little crack we want to know who's out there some of us, we flung that door open wide and said, come in. But this whole idea that he's going to come and dine with you, the, the table fellowship is so important in the Eastern culture. When you sit down at a table with somebody and you're eating the same fruit, the bread, the fruit, the water, the wine, whatever it may be, when, you're per, when you are consuming the same stuff with another human being, you are consuming what God, the God of the, uh, the God of gods, the creator of the heavens and the earth has provided, and you are becoming one with one another in fellowship as you consume that same food. And he's sitting there standing at the door knocking. The imagery is really beautiful. In Song of Solomon chapter 5, Jesus is standing at the door in this imagery, knocking on the door of your heart as a spouse. In Luke chapter 12, he's standing at the door, knocking on your heart as a master. In John chapter 10, he's at the door as the shepherd. In James chapter 5, he's at the door as a judge. 
And this is one of the things, when you hear that knocking from God on your heart, what's your fear of letting him in? What are you afraid of to let Jesus come into your life, into your home, into this shell in which you dwell? Have you ever had anybody come over to your house when it's not clean? Have you ever had anybody go to use your restroom and your restroom's been used by your teenage sons before you've had a chance to clean it? <laughs> Happened yesterday. <laughs> or do you want him to come in? Here I am, Jesus. I know my wretchedness and my misery, apart from your joy and your peace. I know that I am shamefully naked, apart from your righteousness. I know that I can't, I can't even see myself clearly unless you give to me what is true. I come to you in humility. I come to you in faith. I swing open the door of my heart, my mind, my life, my home so that you can be my spouse, so that you can be my master, so that you can be my judge, so that you can be my all in all. I love your promises. I love, I absolutely love the promise that when I die, it's not my end. I know when I close my eyes, when they open, I'm going to see the God who created me. And I have this promise that you have, that I'm going to see him as he is in all of his truth and all of his glory and all of his light. What is he? I don't know, but I can't wait to find out. He stands at the door and knocks. Don't hide behind your religion. Don't hide behind your parents' religion. Don't hide behind your riches and your wealth and your ignorance. It's God, God, here I am. You know, you know me. If I, if I am not aware of a need, tenderly make it aware. God if, God, if I'm trying to shove you out from, from table fellowship with me, give me that conviction. Lord, here I am. Ultimately, this, this whole idea that he's going to come in and dine with us, it's a, it's, a, it's a picture of that marriage supper of the Lamb that we, as the body of Christ, boy, are we going to feast together as one in his kingdom that's coming. What a promise. And his last encouragement to this congregation is those who overcome through faith in Jesus Christ, through the power of his resurrection, that he is going to grant to us to sit on his throne just as he sat down on his throne with his father. And that idea we're going to pick up on in the next couple weeks because Revelation chapters 4 and 5, we are ushered into the throne room of God. Here, it, it, these, these are two of my favorite chapters in all the word of God. And why they're my favorite is because it is, it's opening the door of heaven 
And we see God in all of his glory, seated on his throne, and the imagery that's associated with it, the worthiness of Christ. But we repetitiously have what human beings are declaring to him. That's me, because I'm, I'm an idiot. I don't, what do you, you go to God in prayer, what are you supposed to say to him? What are you supposed to say to the being who knows everything? I don't know. You listen to the words of praise that he is holy, that he is the one who is and was and is to come, that he alone is blessed and worthy and glorious. We sit in these, these praises of heaven, and it is wonderful. For those of you who know me, this is why I love Revelation song so much, because the lyrics of Revelation song come out of Revelation 4 and 5 as we sing these praises to God for who he is and for what he's done. He is risen. The death that he died was for your sins and your death. And as you open that door, whether you have historically, whether you're doing it today, today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. You open up that door to the being who made you and who knows you and who loves you and has the courage to show you where you're wrong and has the courage and the power to give to you not just life eternal, but life to live today, direction to live today, the words to live today, to free you from all of man's tradition and the culture. Behold, he was anointed and he was sent to proclaim good news that you don't have to die but in him oh boy do we get to live an abundant life because when he comes in it's not that just Jesus comes in but he comes in with all that he is and all that he has and it's wonderful Jesus we gathered this morning and we will continue to gather daily in your name for your glory we want each one of us Lord for those who've been confronted in the past where you've revealed yourself to us Lord where we swung open the doors of our hearts and you've you've been abiding in us ever since we have so much gratitude so many things to praise you for. You keep us in the position of just being awestruck every single day. How you love us, how you provide for us, how you direct. Use all these goofy people, Lord, in my life to reveal yourself to me, and I love them. I like being an obnoxious brother to them, Lord, and I hope that I get to, to, to be salt and light in their lives continually pointing that you and you alone are the solution to all of our woes. For anybody here this morning, Lord, where they've kept that door closed, they've heard your good news, they've heard about your love, they've heard about your sacrifice, they've heard about your resurrection, they've heard that you were on the throne of God, that you are God. And they've never had the courage, the boldness, the humility to open that door and to let you come in 
as God and Savior, that this would be the moment, Lord, that they'd let you in, that they'd hear that call to repent, to turn away from everything else and to turn towards you, that they'd surrender their life to you, that they'd surrender their sins to you, and that they'd trust that every single promise that we have from God in you is yes and amen. Celebrate you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.